so much was lost. My my very motherhood was lost first season. My face remains paralyzed to this day, and I woke up in a hospital bed, and my face didn't work. My eye used to be twerked into the middle of my face, and I remember looking in the mirror and not fully even understanding what what could be wrong, what's going on here, and even when everything honestly is stripped away the core of who i was was someone who um was choosing jesus you're listening to the reframing ministries podcast providing help hope healing and humor for people walking through pain here's our host colleen swindall thompson My name is Colleen Swindoll Thompson, Director of Reframing Ministry and Insight for Living, where it's my desire to help you if you are in a place of being stuck or unfulfilled to find hope and new possibilities in your circumstances. Today, I am so excited to introduce to you Jay and Catherine Wolf, who have written the book Hope Heals. This is a book that has changed my life in so many ways. Thank you so much for writing it, sharing your story, and being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, we're so So glad to be here. Thank you. Well, Jay and Catherine, I'm going to start out at the beginning of your story, and you wrote it in the introduction, so I'm going to read that, and then I'd like you to fill in some of the pieces along the way. It says, I imagine most of us have fairly straightforward pictures in our head about what our lives will look like and who we will become, which basically is why we have this Reframing Ministry title, because we do have that picture. These pictures are mostly of wonderful things that will happen at exactly the right time, and they make so much sense. When something happens that is not inside the four corners of that picture, we view it as a detour and hope to get back on track as soon as possible. So what happens when your detour can't get back to, when the original path is gone? It usually takes a near-death experience. Jay and Catherine, you have gone through that, and I would like to begin by you describing what that looked like years ago. Yeah, yeah, you, you're good at that. Uh, well, <clears throat> Catherine and I, just for a little background, are from the South originally, and we moved to California shortly after we married um, to seek adventure, and I was in law school at Pepperdine. Catherine was in the entertainment industry and just having this super idyllic uh, early years of marriage, and out of the blue one day, we had uh, found out we were pregnant, had a baby, you know, we're on the edge of uh, graduating law school into this new season of life. And out of the blue one day, Catherine suffered a massive brainstem stroke without warning, uh, with no symptoms. And it was very unsure if she'd even survive that to the end of the day, uh, much less if they could even attempt surgery on her at UCLA hospital. And, you know, so this idea that we all have this life we think we're entitled to, these dreams, whether from our childhood or even in the present moment that we think we deserve. And for us that day in April of 2008, April 21st, 2008, all those dreams were hanging by a thread out of the clear blue. And that's the reality of the world that we live in. It's not a safe place. And um, the dreams that we think we are going to have materialize in our life rarely come to pass. And oftentimes the storms of life come in ways we never could have anticipated. And so the question always becomes, what are we going to do with this life that God has for some reason allowed for us to live? You know, can we actually find a way to celebrate it and champion it? And so that has been the journey of almost 10 years of our life after Catherine's stroke um, coming up on 10 years this coming spring is, you know, are we going to be able to lean into this life that we never could have anticipated for ourselves and, and a life that looks nothing like what we thought our life would look like. And, and yet in so many ways, we've just seen the full circle redemption of that life. We've seen that this is the path. It wasn't just a detour that we, you know, hope to get back to the old life that we were living. This is something new. And um, obviously Catherine survived the surgery, but really more miraculously even than surviving was recovering. And mm-hmm. Um, you know, going on to to be able to live a life, though dealing with a lot of disabilities and struggles still. But um, yeah, just finding a way through and doing it together. 
this journey. That we've well, been you on. say doing it together, and I would like to add, you were quite modest in your um, description of what really happened. There was a massive aneurysm that it's shocking, Catherine, that you did survive. Right, you right. Since then, had 11 surgeries and um, have broken your leg. You have gone through the recovery of that. You um, write in here elegant words about the experience. No amount of catharsis or perspective finding will change the fact that our situation is terribly sad and it is deeply broken. I can give God glory and it can still hurt. That gives people permission that even though we can glorify the Lord, we can still have pain. How have you guys worked through some of that, which would be so confusing because there is no map. Right, right. Um, Goodness, it's hard to pinpoint sort of one way we work through that. It's constantly a journey of, choosing to see the goodness of God in the midst of the hard stuff of life and really um, celebrating where we see God so at work, even if we can't necessarily see him at work in every area, at every moment. I think it's it's always um, a moving target to be able to to live um, just into the contented life that we're called to, where we're not striving or not wanting different circumstances, but really um, loving where we are in life, even if it's post-surgery or unmet expectation of this or that or whatever it is in life, that there's really always a choice to be made, in my opinion. Hmm. And speaking of choices, um, is that a one-time choice or is that a choice that you make all the time? I would think it's a choice that, yes, I and anyone would make every day all the time. Um, I think perhaps some people like Paul who learned to be content in prison, um, there are people who can tap into that probably and hold on tight and never let go. But for most of us, I would say it's almost a daily choice in any and all circumstances. I've I've always been a huge fan of Corey Ten Boom. She just has had my heart for many, many years. I love her. And when in a concentration camp, um, she chose over and over a deep joy and peace that was not connected to her circumstances. And I've always been very struck by the idea that She did not remotely know what would happen, but she ultimately knew who was in charge of what would happen. So I I think the quote that that I love is that I can trust an unknown future to a known God, Mm -hmm. that God is known to her. So even though her circumstances are totally unknown, she can rest in that. And I long to live that way. I definitely haven't arrived there. Well, I'm amazed that you just brought up Corey Tin Boom because there's a story about her that I found that I was planning to share on this as we talk huh. today. It's from a book called The End of Me by Kyle Eidelman. It's a fantastic book. Mm. And yeah. in it, he shares that, of course, we know she wrote The Hiding Place and the experiences that you just talked about, finding contentment in circumstances. She mm. also wrote another very little-known book called Tramp for the Lord, in which she met a Russian woman during the Cold War. She writes, this woman was reclining on her sofa. Multiple sclerosis had done quite a job on her. Her body was twisted in every direction, and she depended on pillows to prop her up. She had no mobility, so her husband's time was consumed with caring for her. Corey continues to write, the index finger of her right hand was all that she could control, nothing else. However, she said, as Corey looked at the twisted skeletal frame on the sofa, a compassion overcame her. Every other Christian in the city is watched closely by the secret police. But because she had been sick for so long, she was no threat, so they thought. They left her alone, and with the one finger that was twisted 
and almost broken, she worked day in and day out translating the Bible from English to the Russian language and also other Christian works. So she was never, ever detected because she was overlooked. In our society, it's easy Mm. to often overlook those Mm. who are suffering, and yet they provide a pillar of strength in times of discouragement. What has brought you both encouragement when you have been suffering, struggling, feeling like my body is twisted and broken, I can't do a thing? Yeah. One of the biggest motivating factors, I think, to continue to persevere in suffering and trying to find contentment in whatever may be ahead in this life that God's given us is this idea that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 1. Mm. Um, We call it hoping it forward. Mm. And um, Paul says, you know, you've been given comfort, not just so you can be comfortable, but so you can give it away to those in need, to those in pain, so that they will know the God of all comfort because of you. And um, that's been such a motivating charge for our life. And I think for anybody's life who has been um, given the hope of Christ in particular to to say we haven't come encounter who the Lord is in the midst of pain. We haven't been sort of privy to that experience just to keep it to ourselves. We've Mm -hmm. been given something now that God has called us to give away. And um, that, I think, has seeing that play out full circle in the lives of people who we may never meet in person this side of heaven, but maybe we've connected digitally, you know, through social media or email or at a speaking engagement or through our book or whatever, um, that they have understood a little bit more of who God can be in the midst of their pain because of our story. Um, And, you know, that's the 360, nothing is wasted way that God works, that when we open our hands to our lives and our expectations and even are vulnerable enough to to reveal our own pain and our own struggles, that God takes that and reveals himself, not only to us, but to others through that. And so I think just bearing witness to that continues to be the inspiration Mm -hmm. to know that God is working, um, not in spite of our pain, but through it. And doing stuff he could never have done were it not for this this suffering that we've been through. And um, again, that's so yeah. counter to a lot of the narrative of the world and even our, our flesh. But but it's the story of Christ. You know, it's through that suffering and through that pain is new life for everyone. And so we get to all live that out in our own little stories. Yeah. But, you know. What was that question again? Well, just where have you received encouragement? Because, I mean, Catherine, you were totally unable to move for, what, 40 days afterwards? And then... Oh, yeah. Well, for basically the first six weeks, I was in a coma. So, I mean, definitely unable to move, really. And it was technically a coma-like state where I was looked awake but had no um, ability to, to do anything, really. But right. even once I kind of came to, woke up, I was still essentially nearly paralyzed, locked in type thing. I couldn't see, hear, speak, eat, walk, nothing. So in that place, there had to be dark nights of the soul as as I've read through the book, and encouragement came to you how? Because sometimes we feel God is so silent in our suffering. And while we cognitively know he's not, emotionally it feels so isolating. Yeah, yeah. I think probably the deepest thing that was at work was an awareness of the the truth of Scripture that I'd known since I was a little girl. I um know that so many friends and family really rallying around me was a huge part and that um, just really the the way it it worked out in many ways was that the Lord was was taking care of me through my amazing husband and through all these other things a little bit for sure but I think baseline the reason I'm here is because of something that everyone has access to no matter their situation honestly 
which is the scripture, which is even as a small child, I really clung to the truth of what God had said about himself, who Jesus was, had impacted me. And in my darkest moments, there was just an overwhelming sense that God is working all things for good, as it says in Romans 8, 28, and that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, as it says in Psalm 139, and that somehow all of this was being used, that God um, that God was inside me, and the John 4, 4 is true, is that greater is he in me than he who is in the world, even in my situation. So I saw... Um, just I, I like to say that you've got to be prepared for the pain. There's going to be suffering and pain on this earth, and we have to prepare for it with the truth of God's word to comfort our broken hearts when they come. Scripture is profound in that it's so counterintuitive to the way that we live in this world. I mean, we define good one way. He works all things together for good. But it's not the good as we define good. Good as we define would be a restoration of health or not losing the one that we love so much. Um, But his good is a greater good than we can imagine. But we have to remember that by faith. But speaking of counterintuitive, I mean, the first message Christ gave publicly was the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about blessed are those who mourn, who weep, who grieve. I don't find blessing necessarily in facing those situations that I mourn or grieve. Yet when they have come full circle, there is blessing. In fact, um, the word from Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, That meaning is to experience suffering in a way that we've never experienced before. The Greek word here is the strongest in the Greek language, defined as the kind of grief that takes such a hold, it cannot be hidden, and our tears gush forth. Hmm. When I read through the book and you talked about being in the waiting room and people bringing food and sharing with others who were there with you, I would like to know, was there a sense of mourning in that, but also a knowledge of God's presence in this loss? Mm-hmm. I think there were, um, you know, there are these glimpses of hope, I think, that, that we are called to cling on to in the Christian life in order to continue to live out this journey, this side of eternity. And um I think in moments of life and death, sometimes the highs and lows are are exaggerated. So yeah, there was there were moments of clarity when everything else just the distractions fall away and you're just focused on seeing and experiencing God in ways you never could were it not for uh, the life and death you're faced with. And so in, in places like the waiting room, I think um, I look back on that time when Catherine was in that surgery that first day and. Um, you know, even having grown up in the church, there's probably never a more profound experience of church I've had outside of that waiting room. I think the purest sense of church was when those folks gathered. And it wasn't, you know, just some sort of morning, you know, funeral dirge. It was a little slice of life together, you know, that we were praying and we were laughing even and eating together and singing and um, praying and crying and and all of it. And it was just this, yeah, just this slice of what body of Christ does, that when we need this invisible God to be made visible, the body of Christ is God come alive to us. And it was just this profound glimpse of, of how all of these different pieces and parts show up when we need them the most. And, and certainly that was the most probably motivating revelation is that I wasn't alone in this. And that was, I think, just a reflection of the message of the gospel. We're not alone in the pain of this world. We have a God who has experienced that pain, has taken it on himself. And that is the gift we get to give each other. And it's really compassion when you boil down to it, this idea that Compassion is really to suffer with each other, to bear under the weight of suffering in this world together. And um, that's not something that any of us enter into lightly or should, because, you know, all of us have our own suffering. We've got enough going on as it is. And so it's a 
profound gift when we say, I'm not, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to enter in this with you. I'm going to, you know, take on this weight, cry with you, give you the gift of presence, you know, not give you platitudes or whatever, but just be with you in this pain. And that's um, what so many people gave me in that waiting room and beyond. And then, you know, there was plenty of moments where we forgot, where we forgot what God was doing, you know, where there was some, you know, just turn in the road that we couldn't have imagined. And that continues to play out. And I think God continues to invite us to trust who he has been and who he is and who he will always be because we forget even when we encounter him profoundly but he's still there he's still there inviting us into this relationship and and offering that to other people too yeah um jay you mentioned at one point when catherine had gone through i mean learning to well speech therapy and walking and and so many therapies trying to recover and you mentioned hearing her voice for the first time, which was so different from the voice that you had known before. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wept through this section of the book because there was a, a sense of loss. And you talk about having to decide, what am I doing from here? You were, mm -hmm. you know, a couple years into your marriage. Explain that experience for us. Yeah, I think um, in, in a lot of ways, it's the experience of marriage in general. I think in different seasons of life, we become different people. And that's in a way not something we think we're signing up for, the inevitable changes that come with age and with time, even with children and yes. with different externalities, medical stuff, or just, you know, a pretty typical life. You're still going to have to learn to love a new person that you're married to over time. And, and somehow we have forgotten <laughs> that we all evolve into different people. Uh, much less when you have something just that totally changes everything. And it wasn't just Catherine that changed. It was me. I'm a completely different person than I was 10 years ago. So in that, that challenge was for her, too. Was she going to be able to learn to love somebody new and vice versa? And um, I think that's been the beautiful, again, just reflection of Christ and his church, Christ and us. I got to live out, and Catherine's gotten to live out, and we've gotten to give that to each other, this idea that we can stay because that is what we have promised to do, to make that covenant, that promise that God makes to us, to Christ, evident to each other. And um, yeah, it's been one of the most difficult but gloriously difficult experiences of our lives um, is that, that staying. You know, when everything around you would say, it's okay to go now because this is not what you signed up for. And yet the gift that I've been given to get to do this life with Catherine um, has been transformational. It's been everything. I can't imagine, you know, if I had decided to, to forego this, this life, this past 10 years, just the loss there would be so much more monumental than the losses we've experienced together because we're together and we get to share that process of, of living on a second chance of life. But again, it, just not to make everything a metaphor, but it, I truly believe in our story and in all of our stories, there is this just reminder of what God does. You know, this this second chance of life is what we're all living out. And Catherine embodies that in a very tangible, real way of, you know, she shouldn't be here. And so everything is sort of this gift that we get to experience. And, and so just the joy that comes in the midst of the bittersweet and the hard, the gratitude that comes from being able to witness a second chance of life is what, what I've gotten these past 10 years and or really many, many, many more. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as I read through the book and looked at the pictures um, because I have my own, I have a Jonathan who's disabled and have gone through things of transforming um, pain. And I looked through the pictures and y'all are adorable now and then, <laughs> but I see a difference in your eyes now, which contains so much depth and so much, this is who we are, we're going with it. Was that hard for you to accept, Catherine, as mobility was taken away, swallowing, eating, seeing, hearing, so much was lost? Yeah, um, absolutely. So much was lost, much more than even what you've listed. Um, 
on on an emotional level, so much was lost. My my very motherhood was lost for a season. Um, I couldn't take care of my child. My face remains paralyzed to this day. And I woke up in a hospital bed and my face didn't work. My eye used to be twerked into the middle of my face. And I remember looking in the mirror and not fully even understanding Wow, what what could be wrong? What's going on here? And there were many, many, many losses. Um, not eating is much more than about um, swallowing food. It's it's life and engagement with people yes. and family and friends. And food is this communal experience. And so when that's taken away, you're really in this weird world isolated and alone and it's very tough um on an emotional level beyond the heartbreaking of the physical losses so it was a tremendous amount of loss that took seasons of um the the grief to even fully understand and i haven't arrived yet i'm sure in some ways but um i would say that even when everything honestly is stripped away the core of who i was was someone who um didn't make a cognitive choice but was choosing jesus and to lean in to his plan for me and it didn't look like anything i would have imagined but I honestly think that's probably true of everyone in every story. No one has the life they imagined. And um, there was there was loss, for sure. But um, I think that I, I did have the ability, and do to this day have the ability, thanks to God and His grace, to lean in to um, something that looks different than what I thought it would look like. And that could be anything from my story to my actual face is, um, okay, I guess I'm going to go with this. And I trust God's sovereignty. So I have to believe that something is at work far beyond anything I can understand. And honestly, there's a lot of wisdom in recognizing that darkness and seasons of darkness and sadness and pain can be where God is really calling you to um, steward, to leverage, to find the treasure even. Um, Isaiah 45.3 says that I will give you hidden treasures mm -hmm. in the darkness, riches stored in secret places so that you may know that I am God, the God of Israel, the God who summons you by name. And I love that passage because, again, we are reminded that I want to carry my treasure well during my time on earth. And that translates to I want to steward my story well. I want to leverage my life well. I want to bear the treasure that has been bestowed to me well um, for life. And I did have a deep sense that that was going to be what I would do with, with my life. Of course, it came in a way that you never, ever expected. Right. But yet you are truly upholding God's name because he has given you life to honor and serve him. And that's what you're doing. I came across an interesting term. Um, it's called kintsugi, and it's a centuries-old term used years ago about China, the, the dishware China that is broken. And the story, it says, God looks at our brokenness like something called kintsugi. This ceramic restoration process developed in Japan 1,500 years in the 1500s, broken ceramic pieces are sealed together, but instead of hiding the cracks, the cracks are boldly highlighted and traced over with gold. He says normally anything that is broken and refurbished sells at such a discount. It's not valued except for this kind of pottery. Most often the piece ends up being more valuable 
after it has been broken and brought together through a golden mending. They take a certain kind of glue and trace it with gold dust. The outcome is a piece that is unlike anything else, but it's the process of becoming restored and renewed and of greater value, which is hard to find on this side of heaven. We're not good at taking broken things. We're good at wanting to receive whole things. Mm. And yet God says, I am whole. I am the one to receive in your brokenness. What have been some experiences that you all have gone through where the cracks have shown up and you've seen God bring restoration? Oh gosh, um, literally everything in our story would qualify <laughs> as um, just some very deep cracks, but with a beautiful um, gold dust on them. Honestly, it's it's hard to even imagine our story as just this huge epic tragedy um, and leave it there. Our story is very hard, wrought with drama and tragedy and just suffering. And yet our story is a story of hope and joy and life. So it's um it's ultimately a story of the how did you pronounce that? It's called Kintsugi, and I can send it to you. It's the most fascinating thing. And I looked it up online and found the pottery. And it is so exquisite. Because sometimes they didn't even have the piece that was broken mm -hmm. present. So they filled it with another, which required even more gold and mm -hmm. more joining together. And it's priceless. It's wow. beautiful. Yeah, cool. I, I love, love that. that. I've heard of that too. And I think I think that has resonated so deeply that, <clears throat> you know, again, it's not in spite of the breaking, but it's because of it that we find this new beauty, this new life that glows with this second mm. chance. And and I think part of our ministry and part of the desire of our life is to is to show those intersections between the thing that the world would say is unlovely and the loveliness that that we've seen revealed. You know, of the dichotomy between the heart and good, that those don't have to be mutually exclusive. Mm. You know, and Time and time again, sort of like the Sermon on the Mount, there are these um, seeming paradoxes that the kingdom of God says it's both and, you know, and we're invited to live in that tension, really. And I think in general, to live in this tension of, of really being present wholeheartedly to whatever season, whatever life God has given us and allowed for us. And yet to hold it with open hands, to, to know we still don't get to control the outcomes. And um, I think that's been, you know, this place of really release that, is, that has been so profoundly beautiful. Mm -hmm. To realize this yeah. is the life we've been given. We just don't have to work so hard to control it. We don't have to work so hard to prove ourselves worthy of it. But we get to receive it. And more than that, we get to receive God. And again, that idea of sort of the, a crossroads where this revelation of so much beauty, because there's a revelation of, of just more and more of who God is. Um, but really that, I think the question just that God is constantly asking us all is what do we want? And, you know, do we want life we think we're entitled to? Do we want to just not hurt anymore? Do we want the gifts we think God will give us? Or do we want to know the giver of every good and perfect gift who is God. And I don't know, just that that sort of recognition of that choice that he offers so graciously every day. You know, he's like, what do you just what do you want? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I'm offering you myself. I'm offering you when you open your hands not to lose anything, but actually to gain everything in me. And again, it's just it's that counterintuitive experience of God in this world that, you know, just continually experiencing that in new ways and new stories con continues to show the beauty that, that you're talking about and in the broken places that would never have been recognized were they not broken. And it changes everything. It changes the whole paradigm in which you view the world. And so in a, in a sense, yeah, we're, we're, we would never give back, as strange as it might sound, that revelation that we've 
gain through suffering. And I think even suffering young, which to the world looks like the greatest tragedy. You had all this life ahead, you know, these golden years are gone and wasted and all this potential. And really, you know, you look at um, empirically hospice nurses talking about deathbed regrets of their patients and, and just how prolific it is for most people to live life and come to the end of it regretting so much of the way that they spent it. And I think when you get a, a glimpse of the reality of the world and of God in the midst of it, um, at a young age through suffering, it can actually be used to to inform the way you live the rest of your life. So that on your deathbed, there aren't these regrets. There's this sense of this full circle, um, this ending that, that God has accomplished something in your life and you didn't waste it. So that's the great gift and one we're trying to live into every day. Um, I was reading the other day in 2 Kings chapter 4 where the woman has a flask of oil. She's lost everything and basically says, you know, all I have is this empty flask and it's on the shelf and there's a sense of utter hopelessness. And yet as the story comes full circle, we see her flask needed to be emptied for Christ to fill it every day and be the supply. How often we want to fill our own flasks and have shelves of them. And yet when we get to the end of the life, we go, well, what did that really matter anyways? It's when he's poured into us, which is such a hard thing to release because we think what we're doing is good and it may be great, but in God's economy, he has something better. How has, like you just said, Jay, the church was in that waiting room. How can the church be better at embracing our cracks and our brokenness? Because not one of us is without that. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, um, you know, the church improves in that area that it's really not great at (laughs) by engaging the stories of pain and brokenness and uh, vulnerability and inviting in with open arms people who are uh, not only not right, but who are maybe just in the midst of of everything falling apart and saying there's a place for you. You're welcome here. You're loved here because that is how Christ lived his life on this earth, was entering into the people who had nothing to live for anymore, many of them, or who had uh, fooled themselves into thinking they had it all together. And he called out the reality of their situation in a way that they felt seen and loved still. And I think the church, we've just got to find a way to tell the story of pain in a real way, and thus our need for God, and then continue to tell that story of hope Mm -hmm. to each other um, in real ways. And what seems to happen, sadly, in the Western church is almost a rejection mm-hmm. of things that don't work well, that are broken and messy and medically complicated, or maybe maybe disabled people in general, maybe people dealing with mm-hmm. a whole number of um, types of pain and brokenness. And... The church has got to equip themselves with those people Mm -hmm. so that when others are going through it, they're they're used to it. It's not so foreign anymore. It's close to home. And there's a comfort level with people who are dealing with disabilities of all kinds. And instead of rejecting it for a ludicrous gospel of health and wealth that no one can, you know, really ever aspire to much, the church gets real with people are going through really hard things and we need to be engaging them on a regular basis so we aren't shocked when this comes to another family that's in deep need because of trauma, essentially. We um, have entered into the realm of disability more and how the church meets uh, those with disabilities where they're at, which it it doesn't usually. And I think per capita, those with disabilities are the most unchurched people group in the world. And even just hearing those statistics have continued to motivate us to to enter into the places we never really wanted to go back to, frankly, the brain rehabs and, you know, the the surrounding ourselves with folks with all kinds of disabilities and, and issues emotionally, mentally, physically. And um, you know, God said, that's 
exactly who I want you to go back to because they'll listen to you if you tell them that this is not the end of their story. Mm-hmm. And and so that's been a huge honor to to sort of enter in. And we this past summer actually put on two camps for families with mm-hmm. disabilities um, back south where we're from originally. And it was, it was transformational for us and for about 500 people who came from about 20 uh, different states. We kind of thought it would be a little regional thing in the south where we're from. There's Even a lot- right where you are in Texas. And <laughs> yeah. I know. I wanted to go. Uh, well, you should. You should next year open. come join us. You'd yeah. be invited. You know, but the, the whole sort of language that we felt God was calling us to put forth with this camp was that we're all disabled. You know, I think until the church until the world and society in general starts seeing those of us who are able-bodied, starts seeing our own stories and those with disabilities, we're never going to want to enter into with compassion to take on that suffering, to mm-hmm. try to figure out how to make a place more accessible, to, to change our lives and the way we do it, to accommodate somebody for whom the world is not made. Mm-hmm. And we'll never be able to do that until we literally see that we have our own disabilities. We have invisible wheelchairs on the inside. Um, and and that really puts us all in the same playing field and opens up this empathy and this compassion for each other. And so what was neat just at the camp to see people who had come as volunteers to be so broken and ministered to mm-hmm. as they just bore witness to these families who have gone through really horrible things and yet who were able to overflow with the hope of Christ to the volunteers and vice versa. There was, you know, there was a mutuality of ministry. And I think that's really what the church also needs to just open up that, you know, it's not a one directional thing that we get to give, that we, in the way God works, are are, are receiving and giving. And it's this mm-hmm. cycle that continues. And, um, you know, essentially God has set this feast for us all. And it's up to us to come and join him and to sit down at the table together and, uh, you know, maybe to pull out the chair for those who need extra help sitting down too. Would you say, um, just on a practical level, because I know so often I feel like I don't fit with my son, John, because at church he'll be, he is disabled. He is different. And people kind of step away from that. And I want to say, really, if you just want to sit on the floor and roll the ball, he'll He'll be right there with you and not a judgment will be coming from his mouth. Mm. I mean, wouldn't it be just showing up as a place to start? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was just listening to, to a podcast. It's an NPR podcast called Hidden Brain. And I don't know if you all have heard of it, but it's fabulous. And one of the um, topics was titled Disruptions. And he's talking about disruptions in our lives and gives the example of a man named Keith Jarrett, who's one of the greatest um, Southern smooth jazz instrumentalists. In 1975, he was called to give a performance, just just a performance that he wasn't really prepared for. But to play the piano, when he showed up, the piano was tiny. Half of it didn't work. The felt had worn down. They said, don't use these pedals. Don't do this. So he brought his team and said, film this so we can show it to others as what not to do when you go to a concert. That piece that he played as I listened was one of the most beautiful pieces I've ever heard. And it is his best-selling work. It came from... A broken piano played before an audience that got swept away in the beauty of it. Mm. I think that reminds me too of this, um, you know, again, this counter cultural, counterintuitive experience um, of this transcendence, really. And, and so much of what hope is, is view of this future. It doesn't make sense concerning all the storms around us in this present, but it's this future view this future promise that we get to live into the reality of right now. And I think that has informed how we have experienced what do we do after this trauma? You know, what do we do with this body that doesn't work or with this picture of a life and a marriage that's not what I thought I was signing up for? And what's neat, again, in probably in the similar realms as this podcast that you're talking about, the idea of 
post-traumatic growth is not just yes. sort of eye in the sky thing, but it's really been researched in the past 20 and 30 years and even positive psychology. And it fits so well, I think, with the gospel that and we've seen it in our own lives too, that, you know, you have this trauma that by all accounts, you know, would leave somebody just decimated and never able to get back to where they were before. And yet in the breaking, um, in the trauma and the recognition that the thing right in front of you is not what you thought and it's not going to be the tool you can use to you know play your concert mm-hmm. or fill in the blank picture or metaphor um, and yet something occurs in that deep holy spirit movement and in uh, the way our brains wire together with our souls i think to not only go back to where we were in a sense of just our ability to flourish in the world but then our ability to go beyond that into something totally new on the other side of trauma in a way that that really makes no sense by just sort of the the normal logic of this world and um, how it works. And it's been so encouraging, just that simple idea, sort of the antidote to post-traumatic stress, mm-hmm. that there is another way, that trauma doesn't always just lead down this one road, that there is sort of this option for us to find something resilient and flourishing in a life that we never could have foreseen for ourselves. And and so that's been a huge um, encourager for us, but also just a, a word I think that we've gotten to share with folks who are struggling with their own crossroads of how can I ever move forward in this life? Right. And um, it's just, it's been profound to to think about how to flourish on the other side of trauma. I was going to add that when you think of post-traumatic stress and maybe post-traumatic growth, you think that someone is able to be resilient enough to come back to where they were before, like mm-hmm. they're, they make a comeback. But actually in post-traumatic growth research, people are able to go beyond where they were before. They're able to actually grow. So because of what they've been through, they are now able to emerge as however you want to say it, better versions of who they were. And that that message is very powerful. That's, of course, the gospel message that from broken things and the worst things happening, um, the, the best things happen. Life comes. So the ending. Speaking of that, I should tell you, um, the end of our story and the end of our book, unless you're about to have a reveal that I'm not supposed to. No, I want you to tell us. Um, but on the lines of post-traumatic growth, that's because my yeah. son and I both have PTSD. We mm-hmm. have we have studied post-traumatic growth as well because I'm thinking uh-huh. there's there's got to be more to this than just this side of trauma. There is another side. And another mm-hmm. podcast I was listening to, he was talking about messiness. And he said there, there's a way to think. It's called design thinking. And he has an odyssey project where he tells people, write three options for where you will be in five years for your life. So they start focusing on not what they've lost, but what potentials are available to me now that I am where I'm at. And he says, it's it becomes hard for people to pick, you know, which one of these do I really want to pursue? Because now I'm seeing incredible things. Catherine, mm-hmm. I love your how um, your organization started by sitting in the bathtub. And as you're getting out, you say, Jay, I've got it. This is what we've got to do. Tell, th- tell that story. Because I was like, yeah, go, you know, tell us what that was like. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was such a blessing years into the stroke, post-stroke, to recognize that our story was really resonating so deeply with so many people Mm -hmm. who had um, somewhat similar traumas and sufferings, but not necessarily all very similar. And so we we had created this kind of online um, following. It was before, like, a lot of that was in the works. It was more like a caring bridge post and went to people email. And <laughs> anyway, it kind of grew and grew to where we could not deny anymore that God was really calling us to formalize it into a ministry. Mm-hmm. And um, we were already speaking and obviously already writing. So it just kind of all converged to create Hope Heals and to really more formalize formalize what um, was already happening. And 
from that really emerged this idea of hope healing the soul. Because obviously I don't look very healed to the world, but um, my heart was broken more than anything else when I had the stroke and, um, you know, woke up post-stroke. I think my soul was so damaged by what had happened to me and how could God let this happen to me? And so in the healing of my soul, which did come, I recognized that physical healing was setting the bar too low and that what I really needed all along was soul healing to go on with a different, a broken story in life, but a beautiful whole story of life, honestly. Mm -hmm. So I feel like God really revealed that hope Healing the soul is what I needed. And Hebrews 6.19 says that hope is the anchor for the soul. And that sort of became the, the passage that we cling to in our ministry. Speak to just the person right now who is saying, I'm shattered. I don't feel hope. I do feel angry. Because there are people who are suffering so much. Um, yeah. Can you speak to the person who has lost their hope? Absolutely. Um, several things. One is that many, many years post-stroke, I was able to come up for air. Mm-hmm. I think people are worried a year out from terrible suffering and trauma and tragedy that life should be great again and i and what's wrong with me mm-hmm. and i'm like i think it was four years before i could even fully accept my new life and i don't even know how many maybe six years until we formalized a ministry and eight years before we wrote a book so years pass and healing occurs through much time. It shouldn't be this instant automatic bounce back or you're doomed and you're just depressed and there's no hope. No, no, no. God works slowly. Miracles. (laughs) Absolutely. Also, I would say that um, a truly shattered perspective is pointless. I mean, who's served by that? You know, like, It's only going to make your situation worse, honestly, if you give up. Like, it's not going to help the situation in any capacity. On a purely secular level, to not embrace what's going on in your life. I I think that there is such wisdom for all of us to realize that we may be hard-pressed, but we are never crushed. Mm. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. That that Second Corinthians 4 notion that it's not the end. It may not be what we can understand, and we may be pushed to right near the precipice, but we are not gone. We're still on earth for a reason. God's purposes are longing to come to fruition, even in a broken body. Catherine, just how on days when you're down, do you ask for help? Because asking for help is something that's very hard to do. Interesting. We're, we're firstborns. We're type A. And so it's very <laughs> hard to ask for help, I'll be honest. And the sure. last thing we want to do is feel like we, we are not the ones giving the help on the home. So it's not easy. It's a humbling journey. But um, I would say we we're pretty open-handed and honest when we do come out with it that we need you and we need help and this is too hard so i think um honesty and candor is the only way one can approach tremendous suffering and there is such healing in being honest the power of honesty is profound and when we really let people in to our struggle it kind of opens their eyes that, oh, like, everything seems like it's okay now. 
and that person's still reeling. It's not okay now. So I think um, being able to to speak about our struggles is really important when people are still feeling shattered after the crisis. And I do think there's um, it's semantics a little bit, but we talk about the difference between healing and wholeness. And I think um, for us, this side of heaven, I think there is healing, but I think things are not whole until we're face to face with Christ until, you know, at that point, we don't need healing. We don't need hope because we're face to face with the source of all of those things in Jesus. And yet I think so often we assume, you know, even within the church or, or kind of implicitly tell each other, well, you know, we've gotten to a place where we have it all together now and there shouldn't be any struggles. You know, you know, the truth, you know, the end of the story. And, and yet I look at the picture of Jesus outside of Lazarus's tomb, knowing he's about to bring him forth, raise him from the dead, but he wails at just the brokenness of that moment and of the world and the suffering that his friends are going through. And that's such a comforting picture to say we can still know the end of the story and yet be at a loss for going through the middle of the story. And um, so I think, you know, we tried to really craft that even even when we speak and when we get to preach places and in our writings to say, you know, this isn't some TED talk. This is more like marriage therapy, like on the stage. And probably this is be life. It's, it's real. life. <laughs> yes. You don't have it all together. And we have some of our biggest fights right before we go to do a marriage, you know, event. <laughs> and it's really humbling. And so I think trying to keep it, keep it real in that way, I think has not only given us permission to not feel like we have to have it all together, but it's given other people permission to be in process themselves and also to come alongside us and to help, you know, to help uh, realize, especially in the state with disability and being a parent with disabilities and even parenting in general, you, you can't do it alone at all. And when you try to, it doesn't go great for anybody. Right. And um, I don't know. So the, the opportunity to be parents, the opportunity to be in ministry together and working together um, to, to be dealing with disabilities and trying to be a parent, um, you know, have all just been opportunities for grace for each other to receive that for ourselves. Yeah. And to enter in and allow people to, to come and enter in with us to our life and to help us um, as we try to pour ourselves out to also receive um, what people want to pour into us. And, and that's a hard two-way street sometimes, but it is necessary. I think it's part of the work that God is doing. As we wrap things up, I want to come full circle because you did mention earlier, Catherine, that for a period of time, you know, being a mother was taken away. But, you know, here you are years and years after the initial stroke. Tell me about Jonathan, your son, that came as a gift, and tell our audience about that because it's an amazing story. Yeah, yeah, it, it has truly been the joy of our lives to to uh, now have a new son. John Nestor was born in June of 2015, and he's named John Nestor um, after our my neurosurgeon Nestor Gonzalez who did my life-saving brain surgery in the first place. And um, we did not know this, but his name, Nestor, means, among many other things, seeker of miracles. And we thought that is just so powerful and profound that, um, that perhaps John will be a man who seeks miracles as well. And as we see that precious little two-year-old growing in our house, probably about to wake up from nap any moment now, um, we, we get to see this picture of broken things that make new things and how near death can bring new life and how that's really the gospel story mm -hmm. and how um, things are, are restored either here or in heaven. Well, I just want to say thank you for making time to share hope, to share reality as it is, not as you wish or envisioned it to be, and for telling us, yes, this isn't the end. Your story will continue, and there's purpose in it wherever we are in that piece of it. How can people connect with you all, connect with the camp that you do? 
Yeah, so our ministry is Hope Heals. Um, we've been in full-time ministry, actually, both of us, uh, for four years now. And so HopeHeals.com is the main website. We're on social media and things like Instagram, Facebook, and um, all those places. I think we really seek to connect in the digital age in a way that redeems the faux connections that this sort of era in our world can create. Because, you know, we're able to, as somebody with disabilities who can't even drive, connect with people all over the world. And um, so anyway, we love kind of getting to connect digitally. And so Hope Heals is our main site. Then HopeHealsCamp.org has more information on the camps that uh, we did this past summer and we'll be doing again next summer. And so we're always looking for volunteers and again, the village to come and, and be a part of this vision of restoration and redemption and the, the kingdom of God and the body of Christ really just being made manifest. That's what we get to do together. And it's a beautiful thing. If you've never stepped into this world, be a volunteer at a Hope Heals yeah. camp. Right. It will change your life. I'm going to put into the show notes all of the contact information. But I again, thank you so much for continuing to live, for living in the mess, for being okay in the mess, and letting everyone know you're going to make it. Your story isn't over, and it will unfold as God has it to be. So thank you both so very much for being oh, here Oh, thank today. you so you much, Colleen, for having us. God bless, God bless you. All right. You too. Thanks, guys. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. Our desire is to provide biblical help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.